0: Welcome to Upskill with EdTech, a production of Skillrise, an initiative of ISTE. I'm your host, Brandon Olszewski, Director of Research at ISTE. In our second season, Learners for Life, we explore the need for increasing access to digital resources and how to use them to advance professional learning and upskilling. This season, those of us on the Skillrise team will be interviewing adult learning professionals who are upping their knowledge of ed tech to better support adult learning, as well as experts in the field to better understand trends in work and lifelong learning. The future of work is here and we're ready to dig in. Welcome. On the podcast today, we have Jamie Fall, director of Upskill America at the Aspen Institute, an employer-led movement to expand opportunity for America's workers and communities by promoting training and advancement practices to help workers progress in their careers and move into better paying jobs. Jamie has 25 years of experience in the field, including work with the California State Workforce and the DC-based US Department of Labor. We're also lucky enough to have Molly Bechet, a state policy analyst with the National Skills Coalition who is working to advance skills policies through research and analysis of state workforce policies, advocacy assistance, and policy implementation support. Molly joined the National Skills Coalition in 2018 and previously worked at a government think tank as a digital economy and workforce analyst examining the future of work. Prior to that, Molly worked at Hope Policy Institute in Jackson, Mississippi, as an education workforce and racial equity analyst focused on poverty reduction and braided equity into state policy. Uh, Jamie, Molly, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, To kick it off, Jamie, maybe we'll start with you. So the focus of today's podcast is on skills gaps. So we think of it as there are numerous skills gaps, many of which appear to be widening as we enter the future of work. What can you tell us about these skills gaps? What do you see today?
2: Well, Brandon, first of all, thank you for uh, asking the question even the way you did. A lot of people talk about a singular skills gap or skill gap, and uh, I think the way you laid out the question really is perfect in the way that we think about it. Um, There are really numerous skills gaps, many of which appear to be like you said, widening uh, certainly. But uh, I think there are three types of skills gaps that, uh, that, that we look at right now and what we're hearing most from employers. The first one would be a real basic skills gap and that in, would include things like foundational skills, digital literacy, English language skills. Uh, secondly, uh, there is a huge gap around anything related to IT, whether it's software developers or cybersecurity. And then finally, uh, we're even hearing a lot of uh, skills gaps from in the highly skilled occupations. For example, machine learning. People who are uh, software engineers, if they've graduated from school more than three years ago, they really don't have any machine learning experience. So, um, the skills gaps that we hear about really vary quite uh, broadly in those three areas.
0: Molly, do you have anything to add that that's covering a lot of ground? What are your thoughts?
1: It is. It is. And, you know, there are a couple of things that I do want to add specifically around the future of work. I mean, as we know, there are some serious unknowns with the future of work just by its nature. But we do know that large swaths of the workforce are at serious risk of displacement. At least 60 percent of jobs are going to be significantly impacted and 10 to 15 percent of jobs are going to be eliminated. And that means that we're expecting about 100 million workers are going to need to be upskilled or reskilled. Uh, to succeed in the resulting digitalized economy. So when we're speaking to these gaps specifically, I mean, in the traditional sense, you know, there's the level of uh, post-secondary education that a person has, generally varying from high school up to and beyond a four-year degree, and how NSC, uh, National Skills Coalition, messages about this. We talk a little bit more about the access to training and education that a person has uh, rather than um, their post-secondary attainment speaking to their aptitude and the notion of a skills gap. But at the same time, in the spectrum, people with a high school equivalency or less are going to be especially vulnerable to those economic transitions and especially those working in low-wage jobs. But there, again, uh, what you mentioned previously, there are other gaps, as you say, um, specifically for people with those foundational skill needs, uh, specifically in English proficiency, numeracy, and the increasingly important digital problem-solving skills which I think we're seeing, uh, especially now, and we're feeling a lot more, where gaps can present really serious barriers to upskilling and onward to opportunity.
0: So given the complexity of the situation, especially as we're thinking about all the equity implications here, the diverse audiences and uh, stakeholder groups that are in need of training, it makes me feel like a one-size-fits-all kind of solution is not very likely Molly, as you think about these solutions, what are some other types of barriers that prevent workforce groups from maybe leveraging different upskilling tools and resources like training programs or educational technology to advance their own careers? What are some of those barriers and what can people do about them?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, when we're talking about barriers and we're talking about serving people with the highest barriers, I think the first thing that we really have to acknowledge is that access really varies dramatically based on a person's circumstances. And we're seeing that just generally, and we're seeing that even now uh, with the scuffle with COVID-19 and the response there, and how people are shifting to digital learning and work-from-home mandates, and how they're able to meet those higher needs and higher barriers uh, when we're talking about the haves and have-not, with access to uh, devices that are going to allow you to do your day-to-day work, and access just to broadband and reliable internet that's going to allow people to leverage those upscaling tools and perform the daily tasks and training uh, that they need.
0: Jamie, what do you see around some of these barriers and some promising strategies for overcoming them?
2: Well, I think uh, Molly hit a lot of the really important points there, but, uh, you know, I think we have to really just acknowledge the complexity of life. There are so many people, whether it's uh, single parents, couples with both parents, Working or uh, people with multiple jobs, people caring for young children or elderly parents or both. Employers and educators really have to understand that the complexity of people, the obstacles that people face as they're trying to get uh, additional education and training, and have to make sure the programs are really accessible online, they're flexible, and employers really have to do a better job of uh, stepping up and providing uh, paid time for people to complete the work that they're uh, being asked to do or that they want to do. If employers want a skilled uh, workforce, uh, they have to be doing more to uh, put skin in the game and make it possible for for, uh, people to complete the programs.
0: Jamie, I feel like you're offering a segue into thinking through what each of your organizations are doing around this. So we've got a world where we have shifting demands in the labor market. Uh, Some of these shifts in demands are due to technology and automation. Uh, certainly, Molly brought up the COVID pandemic and the way that that's changing work and also work training. Jamie, let's start with you. What role is Upskill America playing in terms of helping learners and workers prepare for these shifting demands? You know, you brought in a uh, you brought in this note about what employers need to be shifting. What's Upskill America doing to help working learners today?
2: Well, our work is directly uh, targeted toward employers and helping them create, expand or improve programs so that more uh, workers can uh, receive the education, training and development uh, that they need to move up in their careers. So most of our time is really spent uh, working with employers directly and um, you know especially during this time now uh, with COVID-19 and other things going on we really hear employers asking a lot of questions trying to think through what they need to be doing to make sure that they're meeting the needs of their workers and uh, as Molly raised earlier the important uh, question of digital access digital literacy how do they make sure that their workers are equipped and able to be able to work at home also uh you know just basic things about keeping safe whether it's washing their hands or social distancing how they can help make sure their workers are um equipped with uh, the, the knowledge that they need around that and also um Employers are also trying to understand what their role is in helping people who are at home working and also trying to take care of their children and provide for the education of their children too. So uh, we also hear from employers who are trying to figure out the right approach for outskilling If they're not going to need as many workers now, if they're worried about layoffs or reskilling as they move people from occupations where there isn't a lot of hiring and not a lot of work right now to other areas, uh, whether it's healthcare or others where there is a lot of hiring going on, so that's really what we're talking to our employers about, what we're hearing from them.
0: Molly, you and Jamie both bring uh, some impressive experience and workforce to the conversation today. Although I realize that. National Skills Coalition is probably taking a different slant on this issue, how to help working learners prepare for the shifting demands of the labor market. Um, What are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, you know, we're a slightly different organization just based on our makeup. And I mean, as the name would tell you, I mean, National Skills Coalition is a coalition of advocates, including community colleges, businesses, the public workforce system, uh, community-based organizations and those direct service organizations but all working together in tandem to advocate on behalf of skills training in both state and federal policy uh, and those supports that workers and businesses really need to succeed. And through that network, it's an unusual and also a a very unique situation where we're directly connected to uh, what's happening on the ground and what these state partners are hearing and what they're providing to the people who are feeling the real effects of the labor market as it shifts just day to day, and also uh, in light of the crisis now. So in a normal environment at NSC, we are providing basically insight on program design and policy levers and funding mechanisms for expanding that skills training and those opportunities and support services uh, that workers and families depend on. But of course, in response to the crisis, a lot of that has changed from this more, from longer term thinking and program design into a shift to focusing on how to best insulate workers and their families from the economic fallout of COVID-19 and how we can operationalize the safety net and unemployment insurance, re-employment strategies, and eventually retraining a little bit down the line uh, so that we can bring some stability back to these families. And we mentioned this a little bit earlier as well, but what we're hearing back from those state partners is really just an immediate need for triaging Essentially, what is the crisis with state sessions and legislatures closing down or suspending for the months or for the remainder of the year? And also a really huge demand for um, insight on how to use the digital tools and scale digital access for people who had to make a really immediate shift to distance learning and work from home directives. And essentially what we're hearing is just, it's uh, compounding a lot of inequities and really drawing stark lines between the haves and the have nots. Uh, when we're talking about who has internet access and who has uh, access to the devices that make
0: that possible. Ollie, as you were talking, um, my background's actually in sociology and uh, work, economy, uh, education, social psychology. And as you're talking, I couldn't help but think about this concept of work and learn. So what does it mean to be a working learner? And one of the ideas that SkillRise is really tackling is this idea of, hey, can we make training options more agile as we move forward, rather than the graduate from high school, either get a job or go to a four-year university, and then you get your job, you know, instead of that model. What are the other models that could better work for learning families? Um, You just raised a few really good options uh, or raised some of those issues. Is there a piece that you think policy specifically plays here in terms of that interface between industry and also adult education, whether it's specifically workforce-oriented or not?
1: Absolutely. Well, when we're talking about the inequities and the realities of working learners, and when we're talking, or at least when I'm talking about working learners and saying, you know, the people who are going to college or going to training programs, uh, that four-year college that you might have in your mind of the grassy lawn, you know, non-traditional students, which is adults over 25, adults with children, people returning to work, uh, returning to school after working for 20 years or more, that is actually a more traditional depiction of a student and a learner than, you know, some co-ed that you might see in a movie. And one way to market directly to the needs of that demographic and of these uh, adult learners and working learners is really to provide them with the supports and the wraparound services that they need. And policy, we found, has a really essential role in that. A lot of the community-based education and training programs that working learners depend on have actually been pretty seriously under-resourced. So they don't, uh, or they're not able to fully provide for those workers who may need uh, some childcare supports or who may need some assistance and referrals to safety net programs that provide them with the ability to uh, not only connect to training programs, but uh, persist in them. Uh, So we found that advocating on behalf of uh, working learners in that aspect through policy and uh, the funding that they need and that these direct service organizations need. Putting a really human face to this reality has been a much more uh, productive way to talk about it and talk about the realities and the struggles that working learners are going
0: through. Jamie, thoughts from you on wraparound services. I mean, we're really, you know, Molly's talking about how to help working learners overcome challenges they might experience related to income or transportation or digital literacy, things like that. From your end, how do we help these working learners? And likewise, is there a role that you see policy can play here to better support them?
2: we work a lot on employer policy and trying to get them to improve their programs that they offer. And I think really the program design uh, is an area where uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. You know, we always are looking for the latest uh, new thing that's out there that's going to really help break things open. But actually one of the really positive examples that's been around for a super long time is apprenticeship programs, programs that are designed so people can learn and they can earn at the same time and build their skills Over time and increase wages over time. So that's a fantastic model that's still out there. Also, uh, we've seen some some more work done around the use of video Uh, study.com for example does some interesting things to to, uh, provide education through video and they break it down into short micro lessons so someone who is for example commuting to work on a bus or whatever it might be if they have 10 or 15 minutes they can turn out a lesson Uh, also Amazon has built classrooms into the workplace So uh, people in their career choice program can learn right there uh, in the workplace. And so there are some innovations that we see, some positive things happening around the way that programs are designed. And we just really, frankly, need to see a lot more of that.
0: Jamie, I'm feeling hopeful and inspired now that you mentioned that. Hey, are there any other examples around promising practices you all see either in that kind of like wraparound world or in the design of training or maybe even in the policy world. Jamie, do you have any other examples? And then maybe after you, if Molly has any ideas, I think that could be really helpful for our listeners, though, uh, to hear about some just great things that employers or training providers are doing today to help workers adapt to a rapidly shifting kind of labor market.
2: Um, I could point to several different examples, uh, uh, Brandon, that are out there. Uh, Work-Life Partnership in Denver. They're doing some fantastic work where employers pay them a fee, and they help provide some of the wraparound uh, services so um, the workers have what they need. There's another amazing program called Ed Navigators down in New Orleans in the hotel industry that I really love because they help uh, workers within the hotel industry really solve the education problems of their families. And through doing that, they're really helping uh, bring a lot of peace and improvement to the workers. So the workers are, are missing work less. Their, uh, their families are doing better. So there are some specific examples like that that we see around the country that are, are really positive right now.
0: Molly, any thoughts from you from promising examples you've seen too?
1: Yeah, um, from my personal research, but also just what we're hearing from our state advocates and our partners, It seems like blended learning applications seem to work best for working adults and blending learning in the sense that it takes the in-person component of instruction, uh, whether it's going to be in a classroom or maybe it's at a work site, uh, and then it pairs it with some sort of digital learning tool, um, which essentially provides multiple modes of learning and a little bit greater potential for uptake for the working learner. I mean, essentially, working adults are going to learn best when their foundational skills instruction and the technical training are integrated with on-the-job instruction and those contexts that help commit um, the skills to memory and really help them integrate not only that learning experience, but integrate it with what they're going to be doing day to day and how they contextualize that and then turn it into knowledge and turn it into their everyday and uh, essentially master that skill and then pave the way for additional upskilling uh, potential
0: after that. Let me run with that a little, Molly. So um, you know, you mentioned blended learning earlier. You had also brought up the, you know, the broad question about the future of work. So one of the big assumptions behind skill rise is that in moving ahead through this 21st century, it's our job to be learners for life. Being a lifelong learner is something that's going to help me. It's going to help my family, my kids, it's going to help my colleagues. And that's an essential quality of being competitive in today's changing labor market and workforce. You mentioned blended learning. Uh, Are there other resources or digital apps that you found most useful for supporting adult learning? And if you don't even have some apps or kind of digital tools that come to mind, do you have specific goals or hopes here? Molly, maybe since you had just kind of brought this up, maybe we can start with you.
1: Yeah, sure thing. Um So, obviously, in the future of work, everything is digitalizing, even jobs that you wouldn't necessarily consider that would be digitalizing, maybe a construction worker, you can conceptualize that as something that's pretty physical and manual, but we're hearing from so many partners now that even construction workers are having to read their blueprints off of digital pads and panels, so even a lack of digital problem-solving skills in that sort of field can put workers at a disadvantage. So when we're talking about this question of a learner for life and building these digital skills, you know, there's untold value in integrating digital learning into adult education spaces. But I don't know that uh, an individual app itself can really insulate learners from future of work transitions. Rather, I think it's about that continual upskilling and continual push and ability and resilience that allows people to problem solve and build their digital skills and build how they uh, interact with digitalizing components, not only in the workforce, but in society as we're heading towards this shiny digital future.
0: Jamie, what about you? Prompt, you know, ed tech, future of work, adult learning, lifelong learning. Thoughts?
2: Well, Brandon, uh, what we hear from employers really is that uh, people have different success with different tools. So I can't really point to one tool and say anyone is going to have success for this in many times. Right. It depends on how it's rolled out in the workplace. And you know whether people have time to actually use it, and all of the other uh, employer policies that would go with that. But um, I will say that we do hear quite a bit about you know the different things that can be done on the phone, whether it's gaming, uh, video learning. Companies like uh, CellEd and Boxy that are helping with English language skills, and then uh, certainly another area where we hear a lot of promise is virtual reality and the way that people are using that now uh, to really help with different types of training. And that it's allowing people to learn things um, more quickly and more thoroughly uh, than they uh, used to be able to. So those are a few of the bright spots that I would point out.
0: Well, at this time, as a lot of adult learning organizations are learning to adapt to more uh, more online options, especially in response to COVID, it's been a real pleasure to hear some bright spots in the field from the both of you. Uh, about EdTech, lifelong learning, and, uh, and what both of you and your organizations are doing. Jamie Fall, Molly Bechet, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Upskill with EdTech. Uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Upskill with EdTech podcast series is produced by Getting Smart as part of ISTE's Skillrise initiative. Our editor and music man is Trevor Stout. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For additional valuable ideas about EdTech, adult learning, and upskilling, check out skillrise.org where you can download the Skillrise framework and find other great resources. You can also keep up to date by following our Twitter feed at Skillrise.org, or you can join the conversation in our Workforce EdTech LinkedIn group. Thanks for tuning in.